Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. This is Religion Today with Martin Tanner, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. I wanted to talk about an experience I had a few years ago. I was invited by an atheist blogger to have a debate with a former member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He left and decided that he wanted to be an atheist. When I asked him why, in the course of this debate, he said there were things that he found in the Book of Mormon in particular that he just couldn't believe. And I asked him for some examples. Now, I should parenthetically state here that I've never shied away from debates and discussions because I always feel like I have an unfair advantage when I talk about the Book of Mormon, and that is the truth, because I believe Joseph Smith to be a genuine prophet of God, hence the details in the Book of Mormon will be vindicated, and that is a very strong position to have. So what was the hardest thing for this atheist and former member of the church? It was the issue of steel mentioned at the time of the Jaredites. He said, if you try to find out about steel, you'll find that there was no steel before the 1800s. And and that's true if you're talking about great steel foundries like we now have in the industrial age. But it's not true because there really was steel. It just came from different sources and was made in different ways and wasn't nearly as exquisite as the steel that we have now, but it was still pretty amazing for its time. Let's take a look at some of the references to steel in the Book of Mormon. There is a reference in 1 Nephi chapter 4, verse 9, that talks about old world steel in the form of a sword, the sword of Laban. We also see a reference to it in Messiah chapter 8, verse 11. It mentions Limhi's explorers finding the remains of Jaredite battles with blades that have rusted, suggesting that they were metallic, probably steel, because bronze doesn't really rust. It's iron that rusts. And then, fascinatingly enough, we see that in Ether chapter 7, verse 9, that some of the Jaredites were described as having steel weapons. And that was the part that was so outlandish to the gentleman that I was debating with. Because, he said, 
the Jaredite group came across at the time of the Tower of Babel, which is approximately 2,000 years before the time of Christ, and no one had steel back then, he said. Au contraire. Let me explain how people back then did indeed have steel. For example, steel was known to the ancient Egyptians in the Middle East. King Tutankhamun, King Tut, as he is commonly referred to, in his amazing sarcophagus, his, his coffin, there was a steel dagger that was in it. Now, he wasn't quite to 2000 BC, but we have some small bloomeries or foundries that date from northern Africa, Egypt, and particularly in Asia Minor, which is important to us because in what is now known as Turkey and Syria, which is very, very close to where Lehi would have left to go to the New World, as early as 3000 BC, we have information about foundries where steel was produced. It wasn't quite the kind of steel we have today, but it was iron with carbon, which makes it steel, or nickel, because it would have come from meteorites, or some combination thereof that was apparently made in these different small bloomery foundries, as, as it were. Now, we also know that the oldest existing steel sword in the world is from around Jerusalem, the Vered Jericho sword. And it's quite an amazing thing because where are the oldest swords in the world? Well, they are from the Middle East. And that is the place right around there. That's the area, Babylon, where the Tower of Babel would have been, that the Jaredites would have left to come to the New World. Now, when they got to the New World, they could have either had swords that they brought with them from the Old World, or possibly they could have created their own. Now, why would that be possible in the New World? Because one of the greatest, greatest meteorites or meteors, since it was so large, that has ever struck the planet, struck in the Gulf of Mexico at some time in ancient, ancient, great antiquity. And meteors are the major source of iron at the surface level of the Earth. If you take um, time to talk to some scientists who are knowledgeable about the Earth, they'll tell you the core of the Earth is made of iron. And you say, well, how do you know that? Nobody digs to the center of the Earth. But they, they can detect things like that from the way that earthquakes um, create seismic waves and the different signatures of the minerals through which they pass can be used to detect uh, what the center of the earth is like. And it turns out that the center of the earth is, is iron. But that doesn't have anything to do with the surface. The surface of the earth, the only way that you could really have much iron that would be useful would be from meteors that strike the earth from time to time. The largest in ancient times that would be relevant to us would be the one that fell 
near the Yucatan Peninsula, which would have been, I believe, where the Jaredites and the Nephites would have lived. That's also, incidentally, the meteor that many scientists believe wiped out the dinosaurs. So there would have been a great deal of steel in the New World from that meteorite. It's interesting if you take a look at the Book of Mormon that after the use of steel by the Jaredites, and and it doesn't describe all the Jaredites as using steel, but only certain ones that had this knowledge of of how to smelt um, a steel sword. There's Shul, and he's mentioned in Ether chapter 7, verse 8, who is described as mighty in judgment. We're told that he did molten out of the hill and make swords out of steel. And then it talks about how he used them in battle and helped others use them in battle. And after after that generation, which is basically wiped out in wars, as you read just a few verses further along in Ether chapter 9, verse 12, you see that there's not much mention at all of steel in the book of Ether after this little episode, which is probably an indication that steel technology among the Jaredites was lost. It was probably there through the knowledge of this one guy, Shul, or maybe a few others. And then by the time that the Nephites came, it had been lost. It's interesting that during the time of the Nephites, over and over again, the sword of Laban is talked about as being quite an amazing thing. It's talked about as being precious, and it's discussed as, well, First Nephi, chapter 4, verse 9, says that it's had a blade that was most precious. Well, what made it most precious? Probably the fact that it was steel, and this was something that was quite unusual. Time for our break. We'll be right back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Stay tuned. Religion Today with Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Talking today about a debate I had several years ago with someone whose name I won't mention. I don't want to embarrass him. Uh, Nice guy. I feel bad for him because he left the church over a question that should be able to be answered if someone digs deep enough. And that was the issue of steel. He thought it was impossible that there was steel couple of thousand years before Christ. But it turns out that there was steel, and it was available in the Middle East and in the New World, by inference. And that's exactly where the Book of Mormon places it. Joseph Smith wouldn't have had any way to know that information, but Joseph Smith's description turns out to be true. Now, parenthetically here, before I go on to a different debate issue that I had with this uh, gentleman, I wanted to mention that this illustrates a great question 
there are things that are difficult to understand. What do you do when you have a question about the gospel and you just can't come to a conclusion about how to answer it? You don't have a resolution. Well, this guy who I was debating just gave up and said the church isn't true. There have been a few times in my life when I did not know the answer to a question. And rather than throw the baby out with the bathwater, to use the old metaphor, I thought to myself, and I highly suggest something like this for you, because everyone will have some question come up. Joseph Smith was a genuine prophet. Today's prophets are genuine prophets. The teachings of the church and the people in the church are good, are pure, and are full of genuine goodness from God. Hence, if there is some kind of an unanswerable question, that doesn't mean that all of those wonderful things should be questioned or not believed. Question your questions, or stated another way, set those questions aside until you find a way to answer them. Don't just throw the whole church away because you can't answer a question. Think how silly would that, that would be in a scientific context. What if someone said, well, we don't know the answer of how the first people came to the Americas over the land bridge over by Alaska. Well, does that mean they never came? No, that means we have to wait and see all the details. Someone else might ask a question. Well, how do we know about horses in the New World uh, the, before Columbus? Well, I could give you citation after citation, but somebody who may not know those wouldn't know how to answer that question. And if you set that question aside and do some look, looking around in good sources, you will find that there are a number of pre-Columbian legitimate, wonderful, good sources from scientifically reputable people for horses in America before Columbus. So that's how you deal with issues that come up. Look, set them aside. Don't discard your faith. Wait till you find a good answer. All right, on to a few more questions that were brought up by this gentleman. One of the big ones was he said, Latter-day Saints believe in a mother in heaven. I just don't buy that. There were never any ancient Jews or Christians who believed in a mother in heaven. That's just nonsense. Well, it turns out that he is definitely wrong. There are at least three highly regarded scholars who would say otherwise. One of those is, or was, he's since passed away, Raphael Patai, a professor at Columbia University, who wrote a book called The Hebrew Goddess, in which he essentially talked about the ancient Hebrews' belief in a mother in heaven. In other words, a wife of Yahweh. There's another source for this. Professor William Beaver, who 
was a professor at Harvard and then the University of Arizona and uh, several other places. A wonderful gentleman who's an absolute scholar on the Old Testament and its history in terms of archaeology especially. And he has written several monographs, and, and one of them is entitled, Did God Have a Wife? And he answers it in the affirmative. And he also comes to the same conclusion that uh, Professor Deaver did, that God in ancient Israel was believed to have had a wife. And then you get to Princeton professor Elaine Pagels, who describes how in early Christianity there was also a belief that there was a mother in heaven, just as there was a father in heaven. In other words, there was a female goddess, just like there was a male god in early Christianity. And so all of those are sources that if the gentleman that I was debating had waited a little bit, hunted around, and checked out over time, he would have easily been able to find these, I'm sure. Another question that comes up from time to time is, I don't believe, and this is one that he brought up, I don't believe that Native Americans have anything to do with Hebrews. Well, that's a fascinating comment. And one of the mistaken notions of early Latter-day Saints was that all Native Americans were somehow descended from Lehi and Nephi. The Book of Mormon doesn't say that. They just inferred that. I would suggest that that could not be true. There are over 1,800 Native American dialects, and the genetic makeup of Native Americans is incredibly diverse. Many of them obviously came over on the land bridge from uh, Asia. There are others that very definitely have a link to the Middle East. Science Magazine, Volume 280, on page 520 from 1998, had this statement in it, which I thought was fascinating. Quote, a new genetic study may link Native Americans and people of the Middle East, offering support to the controversial theory that a band of people who originally lived in Asia Minor, meaning the Middle East, were among this continent's first settlers. This new data comes from studies of a genetic marker, which has been found both in living Native Americans and certain groups in Asia Minor, including Israelis but not found in any Asian populations. Close quote. That is from Science Magazine, one of the most highly regarded scientific journals in the world. It says, in no uncertain terms, that some, certainly not all, but some Native Americans have DNA markers that indicate that some of the earliest settlers in this country were from the Middle East. That, to me, is fascinating. In conclusion today, and I could go through probably another half dozen issues that, that came up, 
in conclusion today, I just want to mention that there is an answer to every question that can be thrown up against the Book of Mormon and against the church and its leaders. If you take the time to wait and find good sources, you will find an answer to all of your questions. Why? Because the church is true. Join me again next week. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.